The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about big data and efficiency, and we have a wonderful guest coming to us from the East Coast. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Edward Tenner is a distinguished scholar of the Smithsonian's Lummelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation, and he's a visiting scholar in the Rutgers University Department of history. He was a visiting lecturer at the Humanities Council at Princeton, and he has held visiting research positions at the Institute for Advanced Study and the University of Pennsylvania. His essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, and much more. And he has given talks for many organizations, including Microsoft, AT&T, and many others. And he even had a, gave a talk for, uh, had a TED Talk. His uh, previous book, Why Things Bite Back, Technology and the Revenge of Unintended Consequences, written in part with the Guggenheim Fellowship, has been translated into German, Japanese, Chinese, Italian, Portuguese, and Czech. And we're going to be talking about his newest book, which is called The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. So thank you so much for joining us, Edward. Well, thank you very much, Mari. Okay, so how come you decided to write this book? I was looking at the trends that uh, had been gathering steam since around uh, 2005 when I signed a contract for a book on positive unintended consequences. And the more I looked, the more I saw that there were new positive as well as negative unintended consequences in the emergence of a constellation of the web that included mobile computing, big data, the cloud, it was all really part, and of course, social media. So it was all really part of a of a of a of a second version of the web that had all kinds of new opportunities, but also new problems. And what I saw was that many people were criticizing the emerging world, especially the role of social media, but they weren't looking at what I thought of as the main problem, which was that all these things were designed to make life more efficient, but if used to extremes, they could make us less efficient. 
Right, right. And you talk about that you need to have a <laughs> a definition for what is efficient, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So how would you define what is efficiency? Well, efficiency, I would say, is, is simply put, getting more for less, uh, more miles per gallon, more light per watt, more words per minute. So that, that's really great. And so in that sense, it's, it's very hard to criticize efficiency. Who would want to praise uh, inefficiency? And this is true of of the uh, of progressives too they want energy efficiency they they want uh, uh more efficient education so it's something that cuts across political lines but the problem that i see is that that too much of it in the short term can deprive us of opportunities to become even more efficient in the longer term right right so you called it the efficiency paradox what big data can't do what were your thoughts about that? Or I'm sure your publisher helped you with that, with that title as well. But what were you thinking? <clears throat> well, that actually that was that was my title. Oh, uh, even I, better. I, well, I worked in I worked in publishing for 15 years. I was mm. an acquisition editor, and one of the things that editors are supposed to do is help <laughs> authors with titles. So I had enough experience to know what would be a successful title. Mm-hmm. And in fact, all, all the titles of my books, I'm happy to say, are, are, are my own, um, oh. uh, just because I, I had to develop that, that, uh, that, that knack. Um, it, it actually started with one of the first books that I sponsored at Princeton called Why Big Fierce Animals Are Rare that became uh, the basis of our popular science series. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so... Um so we talk about what big what big data can't do. You know, you talk about <clears throat> in your preface you kind of give us a, a, a hint of really the 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 seven things um you know that well the title of the preface basically is <clears throat> excuse me, the seven deadly sins of efficiency. I love that. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> so let's just kind of go over what those seven deadly sins. I think that's fascinating. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, I, um, it's, it's hard for me, although I'm, I'm familiar with them. I'll it's, give it to you. I'll give you. I it, got them right. Okay, in front okay. Of me. <laughs> just go because I, I don't, I don't usually think of them as a, as a list in that way. Right. So if you, if you name them, then I can elaborate. Okay, exactly. Well, that's why I have them ready for you. Counter serendipity is the first one. Um, counter serendipity just means that if people are always getting suggestions that are similar to what they've been watching, what they've been doing, um, they may be more satisfied, uh, but they might be also depriving themselves of the opportunity to to get to know something that's really different, that's that's unpredictable, and that could become an interest that was as least at least as great as the as the original interest. Okay, so you think that it might even uh, reduce creativity? Is, is that well, I think it would. It, it can it can narrow what people are are reading because the 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 tendency, for example, of recommendation software is just to give you more and more of what you already want and that is not a good way to enlarge uh, your your tastes right. um i can tell you one story that that um 
independent bookstores uh, or even chain bookstores can be a great source of serendipity. I once got a call long ago from John Kennedy Jr., who happened to see uh, my first book in this uh, series, Why Things Bite Back, in a bookstore while he was looking for another book. And he was really intrigued by the thesis, so he invited me to lunch, and I wrote a, a, a few articles for him. I don't think that that it, it, it I would never have actually proposed writing for George magazine because I was not a political writer right and uh, and yet there was something in my book that John saw that that um, that appealed to him so I think a lot of opportunities come people's way when they happen to to notice uh, something or someone that they otherwise wouldn't and that that's also a, a defect of of uh, you know electronic dating sites that they're they're so concerned with with matching people and and so much of what happens uh, to attract people is is really more magical than algorithmic. Right, you could go into the grocery store and you're both you know squeezing tomatoes or something and, and there it is, right? Exactly, and you, you you can't do you can't do that with online shopping. No, no, you can't do that. All right, the second one you had was hyper-focus, and that's kind of related to the first one, too, huh? Yes, it is. It's just the idea that, that you're, you're, um, you're concentrating so much on, on a certain goal that you are maybe ignoring some data that would also be relevant to the goal. It isn't, it isn't the same thing as counter, counter serendipity. Right. It's, it's really that, that, um, that you're, um, you can be too involved in a, in a certain kind of quantitative question and not get the whole picture. Right. Can't see the forest through the trees. <laughs> All right. Um, how about self amplify? This was a good one. Self-amplifying cascades. That was interesting. <laughs> Well, uh, some researchers on um, on web behavior have found that with social media and with other um, recommendation systems, uh, very often what is ranked highest is really not because people would independently rank it highest, but because something or someone gets a head start. Right. And that start snowballs. But if people are given the chance to say, well, what, what do they really think is best, uh, they would have a somewhat, a somewhat different order. So there is a kind of arbitrary benefit. And sometimes, of course, people who uh, will, will use uh, software to artificially inflate uh, their, their initial advantage. So what, what you're getting is not the kind of natural, organic selection of what people really like most, but what you're getting is, is, a, is a certain kind of biased selection. Right, an algorithm selection, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, the next one is skill erosion. I thought that was interesting. We see skill erosion in, um, in, as, a, as a risk, for example, in, uh, in aviation, and, of course, the tragedies of the Boeing 737 MAX yes. Yes. show how important it is that pilots be fully trained for all of the latest technology. Now, that's expensive, and uh, Boeing originally said that, well, you, you don't really have to have more than a brief um, a brief training session, but pilots are always concerned about 
how automatic equipment, if you don't practice, right. will make it much harder to respond when there's some kind of glitch or failure in the automatic equipment and you right. have to go back to manual operation. Yes, yes. And, and uh, I by see the way, that, that is something, yeah. uh, I just, not, not, sorry, not to interrupt, but that's something that, that is really relevant for so called autonomous cars. That is, if. I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> okay, okay. Good. Yeah, go ahead, because you, you well, read my drivers, mind. If, if, <laughs> I mean, I, I, think, I think a lot of autonomous features are, are really great. For example, something that's available now. Uh, adaptive cruise control. When I'm using cruise control, it's it's frustrating because you're always creeping up on some car, and then you have to disengage the control. But right. I think if if uh, people are able, for example, to uh, cruise with confidence on long interstate drives, uh, that's great. And and automatic braking for uh, deer or pedestrian is also terrific. So I'm for a lot of these autonomous features. But there's an idea going around that. The cars are going to be fully robotic, and even if that really works, wouldn't I have I have a lot of doubts about that for reasons I discussed in the book. Even if that really works, one problem is that if if people aren't really used to exercising their reflexes in driving day right. after day, uh, they may lose their ability to respond when there is some unforeseen situation. For example, uh, whiteout conditions in snow. Uh, sometimes fog. The uh, systems that are being developed, I believe, can't still can't detect potholes. So there, there are many things where drivers' reflexes will remain important. And if they are lulled into the idea that everything is doing is going on robotically, uh, there may be tragic results. Yes, you know, I notice even with my car, which has that, you know, the stopping, it it uh, there was something really wrong with it because it would stop when there was nothing there. It would, you know, what I mean. So that's another. That's another. Thing. Yeah, that's another yeah. problem of these systems. Right. Uh, and um, uh, there, there sometimes. I mean, there, there was. They're sometimes defended by people who say, "Well, look at all of the accidents that are caused by human error." If you just eliminate that and you have a lower rate of of computer errors aren't you saving a lot of lives and you know technically and statistically that might be right but try telling that to somebody whose grandmother has just been run over and and say well don't be so selfish about it think of like two grandmothers have been saved because of this software right. and you have to have the big picture right. so i don't think that's going to work right right there was recently um a a sheriff and his whole family that were killed um, here in California, because there was some glitch with the automatic, you know, uh, protections that they had, so he couldn't he couldn't stop the car. And oh my goodness, also well, that's awful. Things. I didn't I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah. The next one you have is perverse feedback. This is interesting too. Um, perverse feedback is is when uh, a uh, you know when a system gives you a uh, an incentive. Sometimes the system is is developed to give you an incentive to to uh, to do something beneficial, but people will will um, will take advantage of it to to actually defeat defeat the purpose of it. Right. Right. Okay. Um, data deluge. Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> well, information information explosion is another way to to say it, and I mean by that that. Not only that that people can be overwhelmed by the the volume of statistics, but actually and paradoxically, 
uh, our efficiency at gathering information can make it more expensive to store information for this reason. Um, the sensors, for example, that are used in, in, uh, in astronomy or many other um, uh, data gathering systems uh, are expanding geometrically in the, in the volume of data that they're collecting. Uh, this is also true in medicine, whereas the cost of storing information in, on hard drives, for example, has been going down, but it's been going down more slowly. So we have a very unfavorable ratio of new information uh, to the more slowly decreasing cost of, of storing the information, which means that, that the cost to society, to the companies at least, not so much to individuals now, uh, but the cost to society can be increasing. Yeah, you talk about false positives. I think about all the people who, um, w- let's look at something like uh, credit reports, right? There's there's so many millions of credit reports, and you get these false positives. Someone looks like that they're a, an identity thief or something. They get them all mixed up that there's, um, you know, I think that's another aspect of the data deluge that, you know, it's not perfect. And yes, yes, yes. No, that, that's <laughs> so, one. You know, of course, are one are one thing, and yeah. also uh, the the my big concern about that is is facial identification. So the systems will often give facial identification in probabilistic terms. Yeah, like eighty nine percent. But there could be there could be, you know, three or four people who look a lo- enough like a suspect that they will all be pulled in, and and some critics of. of Big technology have even used the phrase automated suspicion. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, I would imagine you have some concerns then, as you talk about in your book, with biometrics. Instead of using passwords, you know, because passwords can be so overwhelming. And some people think, oh, you know, uh, passwords, or I mean, uh, bio identification. And I know, like, when I open my iPhone 10 and it unlocks for me when I look at it. So, uh, but there's there's some concerns about biometrics, isn't there? Well, there there are. Although I should say that Apple has been pretty good about that because yeah. the the uh, the biometrics in uh, in Apple products, whether they're their fingerprint or or facial recognition, are actually built into the phone. Apple does not hold them in the cloud, right. so it's going to be very hard for anyone to steal that. But if the information is in the cloud, then hackers can steal biometric information. You can always right. change a password, right. but you 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 can't change your face. You can't change your mm-hmm. your fingerprinting. You know, maybe maybe there are plastic surgeons somewhere who will. Who it's will like in Minority Report. Remember in Minority Report, the movie, they had plastic surgeon change the eyes. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Well, the, 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 but the 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 uh, I think the the. Um, the big problem with that is that that people uh, that the companies that promote that like to create the impression that things are much more exact than they are. But if you read the fine print, uh, you read their disclosures, you can see that that it's uh, it's really not so good, and and that you know that in turn can lead to really complicate the relationship of of 
citizens with the police, for example. Right, right. I know that we've had issues with people with identity theft. It was hard enough when someone used their social security number or their passwords, but if, like you said, if their facial recognition or their iris scan or something else is taken and somehow it's corrupted or something, then, you know, you could have innocent people um, that are being charged. So that's, that's yes, a scary Yes, and thing. also automated suspicion applies to uh, ancestry uh, DNA services where where they're looking for a serial killer, so so right. your DNA you know shows you might be related to them. So lots of lots of innocent people can get caught up in a in a dragnet like that. I, I certainly hope that any cousins of mine don't become serial killers <laughs> and and uh, bring us all into this. Yeah, that's how they found a recent serial killer in California. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and then you talk about monoculture. Monoculture just means that in the search for uniformity, uh, people will often converge on, for example, one breed of plant or animal that seems to be most productive at the moment. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain kind of banana or tomato or apple. And um, this can be, uh, in the short run, uh, good for agriculture, good for prices, but of course it also means that a blight, a disease that affects these, uh, can become much more serious. And there was a very tragic case that, that everyone's familiar with in, in Ireland in the 1840s um, that was made worse by British policies and, and exploitation, but, but still it wouldn't have happened if the uh, Irish hadn't been planting one variety of potato that seemed to be unusually productive, and all these potatoes were genetically identical. So when a blight came from South America, it wiped out a very large right. part of the crop. Right, right. So let's switch gears a little bit, and you use the phrase continuous process and platform economy. Tell us what you're talking about, and can you give some examples? There's a really great myth. Um, visual metaphor of the change in uh, industry in, in my native Chicago. There's a, a large building on the lakeshore that uh, was called the Calumet Building, still maybe. And when I was growing up, that was the printing plant of R.R. Donnelly that still exists uh, throughout the Midwest, but then they were concentrated there. And R.R. Donnelly printed phone books, uh, Sears Roebuck catalogs, um, Life magazines. They, they, were, they were really taking advantage of the ability of very high-speed presses to convert rolls of paper into finished books and, and publications. Uh, and the building was constructed with excellent electrical uh, supplies, the the, the, the uh, the frame was reinforced. It was really a, a, a fantastic building. But in the 1990s, uh, Donnelly was printing fewer things. They were moving their printing elsewhere. And the building was sold, and it has now been converted into uh, one of the world's largest server farms, uh -huh. where that all that electricity and the, the, the reinforced construction are, are very helpful. So to me, that's a metaphor of going from a world where, where mm. things are kind of, um, when you look at, for example, pictures of uh, the, the uh, films of the city in the, 
in the early 20th century, especially in the 1920s, you see milk being filled automatically with rotary this and that. There were all these rotary systems that were giving people a continuous stream of consumer goods. And now uh, a lot of that, some, some of that still goes on, of course, but now the the uh, the edge of technology is more these these services that are that are managed by large centralized uh, server farms um, and will uh, let people order without a Sears catalog. So instead of having the Sears catalog printed in the Donnelly plant, the Donnelly plant actually may be processing some orders on the web through Amazon or other companies. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, I, I'm originally from a suburb of Chicago, so I'm one. Of, we're we're Midwesterners, right? Yes, yes. Well, uh, you, I don't know if you if you uh, if you drove on the yeah. uh, on Lakeshore Drive, but I'm sure right. you've seen that that uh, that building, and right. uh, and it always it it really always fascinated me even mm-hmm. before the change. Right. So you talk in the book about uh, how Thomas Edison's career illustrates both, you know, the the dark side and the light side of the search for uh, efficiency. Tell us about that. Well, Edison was uh, the inventor uh, not only of the light bulb, as is usually called, but of of a really efficient system for generating and distributing electricity. He he didn't just um, have have one thing. He had a whole a whole system. The system was was really um, financially set up so that it could be sustainable. He he was really great at financial uh, financial uh, backup for what he was doing, um, and he had many other inventions. Uh, for example, uh, uh, the dictating machine that made for more efficient office operation. But he really didn't understand how important it was to waste resources sometimes. So when he had a successful film company, but when the age of feature films was was coming on with stars and multiple reels, his advisor, who called himself an efficiency engineer, uh, said, well, you, you should really not have too many retakes you should have a high ratio of of film stock shot to actual uh, films and and that was not a very good formula and he sold his company a few years later Uh, edison also thought that education was really inefficient and that by using a special machine for projecting um, films that he made of, of scientific principles that he uh, could really uh, help students learn much more quickly. But that venture failed, too. And one reason for that was that Edison, like the great majority of people who have have thought, people in technology who have thought of revolutionizing schools, the one thing nearly all of them have had in common is that none of them has ever actually taught a class. Right, so they it's all theory and not uh, practice. Yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all a kind of projection of what right. it must be like to teach based on their experiences in, in, in school, but, but the, the actual job of teaching is a, is a much more complicated one, and it is, it is hard to do efficiently in the, in, in, in the sense of 
uh, conventional industrial efficiency. Right. Well, believe it or not, we are out of time. So I just want to make sure I, again, uh, say the name of your book, which is wonderful, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do, Edward Tenner. And Edward, we can just give your website and then it's time to go. Well, thank you. The website is just edwardtenner.com. Okay, so it's T-E-N-N-E-R.com. E-D-W-A-R-D-T-E-N-N-E-R.com. Okay, thank you so much. So keep in touch. We will be interested in your next book, too. So thank you Thanks. so much. Thanks. I am starting to work on it right now. Oh, perfect. Okay, let us know. Okay, thank you. You've thank been, you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the web. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.